SOC analysts are often overworked and underappreciated. In fact, 78% say that working in the SOC is very painful. Yikes. On October 20th, Devo is establishing SOC Analyst Appreciation Day to pay some long overdue kudos to you and encourage organizations to improve SOC analyst job satisfaction and mental well-being. Join Devo as they celebrate SOC analysts around the world and provide opportunities for personal and professional development, all while you unwind with programming specifically designed to help you de-stress. You can also win a Nintendo Switch if you participate in Devo's Twitter hashtag contest. All you have to do is follow at Devo underscore Inc. on Twitter and tweet you using hashtag SOC Analyst Day. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Devo to sign up and learn more. Let's face it, cyber attackers have the advantage. Extra Hop is on a mission to help you take it back. Regain the upper hand with security that can't be undermined, outsmarted, or compromised. When you don't have to choose between protecting your business and moving it forward, that's security uncompromised. See how it works in the full product demo, free online at securityweekly.com forward slash Extra Hop. Did you know that 81% of data breaches are caused by weak password security? Keeper Security's easy-to-use password manager platform keeps your passwords safe, easy to share, and out of reach of cyber criminals. Keeper is the leading cybersecurity platform for preventing password-related data breaches and cyber threats. Check out Keeper and get a free three-year Keeper password manager solution when you take a demo of Keeper for Business. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Keeper Security. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Join us October 21st for a webinar with Keeper Security to learn why zero knowledge encryption matters. If you missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, they are available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. And for today's interview, we've got a really special one for you. Uh, Adam Janowski joins us. Uh, he is the editorial director at The Record, which is a publication funded by Recorded Future, well-known cybersecurity intelligence provider. Uh, he also spent some time at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, very interesting background, uh, Adam. You know, you're, you're a video journalist. You know, you, you've it's not just uh, print. You know, you've you've done a variety or print and digital. You've done a variety of uh, of different mediums. Well, yeah, sorry. Welcome, welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me. I I appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, it's uh, the switch from going to legacy print publication, the Wall Street Journal, where you actually could hold up a physical copy of the paper. Tour the printing press is very different from most publications nowadays, which includes the record. Uh, no printing press that we're operating right now, but who knows? Maybe in the future. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? It could, uh, you know, like uh, vinyl's still around, right? Anything can yep. happen. Yeah, maybe <laughs> it'll be retro where people are uh, holding on to newspapers as kind of a, a vintage, uh, uh, nice little collector's item, probably. When you join the Wall Street Journal, uh, journalists there get like a little. I don't know what they call it, like a sketch, like a drawing, yep. yeah, your, yeah. your your portrait. Was that a big deal getting that for you? Yeah. In the industry, they're called a stipple. Um, and it's just a, a bunch of like little small dots that they uh, have, I guess, trademarked in some way. But they that was one of the, the big moments in my early journalistic career to get my own stipple drawing. And um, when I left uh, the publication, they gave me like a little print out of it and I, I keep it next to me um in in the other room but it's a fun thing to have nice. a nice memento 
Yeah, no, that I, it's awesome. I, I love that they still keep to traditions like that, you know, even though a lot of things about the media industry are changing. You know, like the mm-hmm. fact that uh, there's everybody's got a podcast now, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, I feel like even my grandmother has a podcast, but <laughs> I would, I would listen, I would listen to it. I'm not trying to, to bash anyone. It's, it's great that the podcast industry is going through a revolution. I think that the more podcasts that are out there, the better for, for people. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a good lead into one of my first questions. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of part of this revolution where now we're seeing a lot of publications, uh, you know, kind of born out of these cybersecurity companies. I, I'm sure they're probably doing it in other industries as well, you know, but I'm mainly aware of it, uh, you know, in this field here. Uh, and I, I wonder what that transition is like. Like, do your other journalist friends look at you as if you've sold out, you know, because I know a lot of these publications have really good reputations. Duo Security's got Decipher, Kaspersky's had uh, Secure List, uh, Sophos has Naked Security. And I know a lot of folks who have just kind of transitioned uh, back and forth between dedicated media companies and some of these publications that are uh, vendor funded. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it is definitely like an interesting, unique kind of situation. And I think uh, cybersecurity is particularly suited to those kinds of publications because it is such a news-based industry. Like people need quick information. They need accurate information. They need factual information, whether it's about a threat group that's attacking their network or um, about like some action taken by the NSA or CISA or whoever it may be. Um, it's definitely news driven, which I think kind of uh, contributes to the reason why you've seen so many of those blogs. Um, and just with the record and recorded future, I mean, it, it fit into recorded futures kind of vision of um, in, intelligence uh information in the same way that kind of like the model that we've been going after is Bloomberg news. So they were a financial, uh, a financial news information business, and they started a publication to kind of be the public, uh, source of news for that. And we're kind of doing the same thing with cybersecurity. Um, so it's, it's definitely, we're not, we're not the first ones to try this, um, but we're hoping to be kind of the Bloomberg of cybersecurity. Very nice. And were you were you the one tapped to kind of create this and like figure out what what it was going to look like and feel like and kind of set some of the rules around it? Yeah, um, I was the the first person that they hired as a journalist, and um, it was a new experience for me to be the one journalist in an organization of like five hundred, you know, security analysts and salespeople and marketing people, um, definitely a very different environment from the wall street journal. Um, but fortunately that was a year ago and we now have, uh, about five, uh, reporters, some freelancers, um, who are, are writing articles every day. So it's not as isolating and alone, um, as it was back then, but, um, it, it's definitely been just kind of a wild ride of, of creating your own publication. Um, it's not just about writing the news stories and finding the interviews, but it's about maintaining a website and all these other things that I never had to think about when I was just a cog in, in the machine of a publication that had thousands of people. Right. 
I, I, I've got to imagine you want to have some semblance of separation and, and independence from recorded future at the same time, because if all the experts you source quotes from are people who work at recorded future, you know, like uh, personally, I like, I'd worry a little bit about that. So I'm sure you go outside mm -hmm. for some of that stuff. Yeah, actually most of the stuff um, comes from outside of recorded future and they've been extremely, I mean, like they're, when they hired me, they, kept referencing Bloomberg as sort of the, oh, what they're shooting for. And so they have been very good about be, like creating that separation, giving us independence. Um, and so like they have never told us what story to write or what story not to write. Um, and when we go uh, ask for experts, like, yes, sometimes we report on news that recorded future breaks, but we also uh, just as often go to their competitors and we haven't really had any, any, you know, pissed off people uh, within yeah. the company about that. They understand what we're doing. Excellent. So you're five people now at the record. Um, is there anything that you wish you had that you miss from your days at like the wall street, uh, the wall street journal, like, like, you know, days where you're like, man, I wish we had a copy desk or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something where we, it's it's like a little bit of a the startup life where you just kind of keep going. And if there's a wall, then you find a solution, you climb it. Um, but yes, having uh, like a copy editor or a fact checker or someone who's like just devoted 100% to like some very niche part about the right. publication, whether it's, you know, headline writing, like that's not something that you can have with five people. So I do miss that right. kind of stuff, but also I don't miss the bureaucracy of having like five different editors for a single story. So maybe eventually we'll get to that point, but until then, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine being, uh, a little bit smaller and a little bit more stealthy. Or, or working on a story and somebody deciding that, no, you don't get to publish it or, or yep. you know, they want to go in a different direction. Right. Yeah. Spiking it. Rupert Murdoch yeah. isn't calling down from the, <laughs> the, you know, penthouse suite of the wall street journal's office yelling at you. That never actually happened to me, but. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, who's this Adam guy? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what he sounds like. He's British. isn't he? <laughs> I yeah, Australian or British, not, Australian, not born in America. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, these these five people you've got, you managed to pull over, I think, one of the industry's most prolific journalists, Caitlin Campanu, if I'm if I'm saying his name right. Um, how'd you pull that off? Um, I think he was also interested. He was the first reporter that we brought on, and he is just absolutely fantastic at what he does. Um truly an eye-opening experience to work alongside someone uh as great of a writer and as um diligent of a reporter as Catalina is. Um and I, I think he was he was attracted to the project and the same reason that I was attracted to it. He wanted to build something uh big. He wanted to build, you know, as I said before, kind of the Bloomberg of cybersecurity. Um and yeah, he was based in Romania, which gives us kind of a uh, closer to a 24 hour news right. cycle, even though we're a small <laughs> operation. Uh, you can, you can act like a, a, a bigger one. No, it definitely yeah. helps having, having somebody like that as, as the first uh, uh, journalist there, you know, absolutely. You, 
got got to a heck of a start. Um, mm-hmm. And on top of that, you've got a Russian-speaking analyst with an interesting background. You know, like like with only five people, the amount of stuff you can do already is is pretty impressive. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about Dmitry Smilyanets, who is uh, he's a, a security analyst at Recorded Future. He's not a reporter, um, but oh, it okay. kind of speaks to the the. Uh, unique opportunities that we have being a publication that's um, sort of like connected to a security company. Um, So Dimitri, he doesn't write articles for us, but what we have done in the past several times is that he has tons of connections to the, you know, cyber criminal underground and he interviews uh, some of these professionals um, regularly just to sort of know what they're thinking about. And then based on those interviews, he, uh, you know, publish excerpts from them, publish full interviews, um, with some context with the editor's notes. But, uh, the idea is to get some, some of the, you know, narratives and stories that you would never read in, in other publications. Yeah. So, so, you know, getting into some of the stuff Dimitri has done, you know, you know, on the one hand, it seems incredible that that you got some of these ransomware crew, uh, of course, anonymously, um, on the record, uh, you know, to to give an interview. But at the same time, you know, some of the stuff they say, you know, the the more and more we look at how these operations are running, they they just look like businesses, down to the desire for. For marketing for for PR, right? You know, and it seems like some of them are looking at these interviews as a PR opportunity, where maybe you don't even have to really talk them into it. They're they're already down for it. Yeah, I think it's kind of case by case. Some of them they would never talk to a journalist like myself, and I've tried, and uh, mm. you know, it can actually be um, a mistake if you don't know what you're doing. You can end up being targeted by them. Um, but having someone like Dimitri who uh, you know, has actually operated on that side of the, the space, um, really can speak their language, literally can sometimes speak in Russian to them if they're based in Russia. Um, it kind of gives that more credibility. And I think they open up more um, to someone like Dimitri rather than myself or definitely law enforcement. I mean, law enforcement rarely gets these kinds of interviews. And we've heard from you know, the White House, we've heard from uh, Secret Service members, FBI members, that these interviews sort of have given them revelations about how these people think, how they get attracted to this industry um, in a way that they just don't really get very often. Because as you probably know, like, it's very rare that you can actually uh, get an arrest, especially if, if the operators stay in a country like Russia and, and, uh, ever face extradition and it so it seems like dimitri's probably you know the 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 cog or the the you know lodestone that kind of makes that work right the keystone mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah so uh, sounds like and it's interesting that you've gotten positive sounds like some positive feedback from government organizations because it sounds like you've maybe gotten some negative uh feedback you know people that that uh you know kind of question the ethics of interviewing cyber criminals giving them some airtime 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely whenever we publish these, these interviews, Twitter is kind of a mess for the next 24 hours um, (laughs) involving our account. Uh, It's definitely like, I'd say probably like 70% of the feedback that we get is like, whoa, like you have to read this interview. I've never read anything like this or other publications that are like, uh, Revol is saying that they specifically go after cyber insurers. And then you get maybe 10 to 20% of people who are saying like, I can't believe that we're having this conversation again. You shouldn't be interviewing cyber criminals. It just gives them a platform. And I mean, to be honest, like it's, it's a tough editorial decision. I don't pretend that I know the exact right answer. I think that there's a case that can be made for both. And I understand uh, the concern um, that some people have voiced. Um, but I do think that the feedback that we've gotten from the White House, from uh, law enforcement agencies, it, it does sort of give me reassurance that they are worth publishing. Yeah, in my research for this interview, I, I, I saw some some of those tweets that you're talking about, you know, some of the responses to D- Dimitri calling him an FBI mouthpiece. <laughs> like, ch- <laughs> yeah, chuckled at that a little bit. Definitely some, uh, some harsh words that have been thrown. Yeah. Um, and I, I love that Dimitri ends each interview with the same question. He's like, tell me a secret. Yeah. That's his like little signature <laughs> trademark. And his sign off people again. Yeah. They like, they definitely open up and I feel like that kind of open-ended question, you end up hearing things that you would never have even known to ask, I guess. Yeah. And it's, you know, there, there are, so, you know, I think some of these interviews, it's what you'd expect, you know, it's what we suspected or what we've heard through, through other channels, um, maybe through law enforcement who have done some arrests you know, and, and we get some insights into, you know, the, the processes of these cyber criminals, you know, the, the motives, how they spend the money, you know, how much money they're getting. Um, but it, it's still even the stuff that you know, isn't a huge surprise. Uh, I, I think it's still interesting hearing it directly from someone. And, and then some of them, you know, there, there are some insights in there, you know, that, that I, I feel like you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't hear otherwise. But before we dive into some of those, um, I don't, I don't know if you're, um, if you've gone deep enough into it to be comfortable answering this question, but just talking about diving into some of these crews and how they operate a little bit. Um, could, could you help me understand the relationship between operators and affiliates? And are, are those like the two main groups Am I getting that right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I am not uh, like a super expert at this. Dimitri would be able to speak to it better than I can. But my yeah, we don't have to go that, super deep. Yeah. Th- so the way that ransomware has sort of evolved in the last couple of years, especially, is that uh, it's kind of a, a service business where you can, it's not just one person who is developing the malware, installing it on uh, a victim's computer, dealing with the uh, extortion. It's kind of like there's many different components of a single ransomware incident. And so you have um, like a developer of a strain of malware um, who might have like a a name, like a notable ransomware name, but then they work with affiliates who um, might do things like 
buy access to an organization from the dark web and then buy the malware strain from the operator and then use uh, that malware on the victim and try to get the money out. And um, all of, there's a complicated pay structure with all of these, but uh, generally um, when an incident happens, there are a lot of, there's a lot of money involved and there's a lot of different uh, components uh, that are getting like 5% here, 20% there. Um, it's not, it's no longer very straightforward. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the interesting things to me is, you know, when you hear the names of some of these groups, you know, like 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 Revil, uh, you know, you tend to think that there's this one group that's doing 100% of it. Like they're mm -hmm. developing the malware, they're getting the initial access into the into the victims, they're hitting the victims up for the ransom, you know, and, and, and they're taking 100% of that uh, that payday. That comes in when it's it it just sounds like it's much more distributed, and one of these companies that um, uh, that you've got an interview with uh, doesn't even do any of the hacking. They they seem like they're just a, a marketplace, you know, kind of like a, a Silk Road but for data. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, these marketplaces are expanding pretty rapidly, and it's uh, when you talk to law enforcement, they use the term whack-a-mole very often. Um, where mm -hmm. even yeah. if they shut one down, it's like five pop up in its place. And um, these are the kinds of sites that uh, cyber criminals, they don't just go to to get access to victims. They don't just go to, to sell their malware or buy malware, but it's also just kind of a place to hang out in, in a lot of these uh, situations and um, learn how to uh, engage in cybercrime. I think another thing that's kind of interesting for me, and I wonder if it's um, partially a culture thing, um, but, you know, like you, you look at some of the decisions that China makes and, um, you know, just to use China as an example, not, nothing connected to what we're talking about, uh, but where, where they'll make business decisions that, that to us look ethically reprehensible. <laughs> and to them, it's just... Uh, you know, uh, if it works, it works, you know, is kind of kind of the opinion there. And you hear some of the comments uh, from these interviews. And, and I don't know if if they feel a need to believe it themselves or, or, or they, they really do believe that what they're doing could be seen as a service for companies mm -hmm. that helps them be more secure. Yeah, I think I know what you're referring to. Some of the, the you know, individuals say things like, um, we're making the world a more secure place by, you know, engaging in these hacks because we're raising, uh, you know, the the value of security. We're making it uh, very obvious to other companies that they need to invest in this. Obviously, I think that that's complete BS. Um, it's like whole, if if you were a criminal who was going into banks and robbing them at gunpoint, you. <laughs> It would be a hard argument to make uh, <laughs> when you get arrested and uh, show up in court and try to say, I just, "I'm I'm really just trying to, you know, make these banks I'm better. Trying I'm bank trying, security. yeah, yeah. They should be paying me for this service. Like, I don't know that. that I, I'm not sure. I, I guess that they're trying to make these kinds of arguments um, because we've, especially after incidents like Colonial Pipeline or JBS, um, you definitely see uh more um 
that the pressure on law enforcement to do something about this is just at an all-time high. Uh, they're using terms like, you know, cyber uh, cyber attacks can be a form of terrorism. Um, you see uh, threats from, you know, up, all the way up to President Joe Biden, who says that there are red lines. Um, and so I think that some of these groups are trying to sort of weasel their way out, um, try to create like a, a defense in case anything does happen to them that they could say like, my heart was in a good place. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the going rates for pen tests, uh, I, I think they're, they're not very competitive, you know, mm-hmm. not, not that the, you know, the recipients of these pen tests have any choice in the matter, but, uh, it was funny. One of the comments was, uh, you know, I think Dimitri asked if they ever thought about going straight and, and you know, the quick answer was, you know, I could, but you know, it's like a hundred per, you know, a hundred X pay cut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, there's not enough money in it. Um, mm-hmm. but I think also one of the interesting things, uh, especially reading, three separate interviews uh, was looking at the commonalities between them. And and one of those is, um, you know, I think it's easy to look at all these crews as kind of, uh, you know, similar, you know, the same kind of group. They're using some of the same techniques. Uh, You know, they, they, you know, they're, they're using the same basic process, you know, extortion process. Uh, but it, it, it's interesting to see that they compete with each other and they see each other as competitors and, and that they each kind of have their own list of, you know, what's hands off, what what's out of play in terms of, no, we're not going to touch those industry for X, X, Y, Z reasons so we can sleep at night. And, and it seems yeah. to be a slightly different list for each of them. And I found yeah. that interesting. Yeah. And also it, it's kind of like the the definitions of the list are, they kind of leave it open to interpretation where, you know, you can write a victim pops up that is, says like, we're, we're a food, uh, an agriculture company that's critical infrastructure. You said you wouldn't attack organizations like ours. And they say like, we never said anything about specifically like grain co-ops. Um, so it's like the, (laughs) there's so much vagary there. Yeah, yeah, the the farmers co-op or the uh, you know the the meat processing company, mm-hmm. and it, it's interesting. I mean, from a policy standpoint for the U.S., it, it's a huge list when you look at that list of of what is technically critical infrastructure. You know, I I think it's um, in some situations kind of tough to justify such an inclusive list, mm-hmm. right? And, and, yeah, and treat them all as like highest, most critical tier. Yeah. I think that there's something like 16 or 17 different sectors, which all have their own subsectors. Um, every, I guess everything in America is pretty critical. Right. And, and we saw that through the whole pandemic, you know, like uh, people saying, Hey, I'm a server at a restaurant. Uh, I'm critical workforce, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. like, right. like really, really kind of stretching those, those definitions to get the most benefit out of them. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting in, in my opinion that, uh, ransomware operators, they do seem to be like almost a hundred percent focused on money to the extent that they 
are going to hedge their risks. They're going to not go after certain companies because they think that there's a high risk of retaliation. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's so much talk lately about this gray line between state-sponsored attackers and cyber criminals. And I think that ransomware, for the most part, this kind of shows that uh, a lot of these actors are kind of operating like traditional gangs, that they are doing it for financial reasons. They probably aren't that connected to political actors. Um, and as long as there's money to be made, we're going to be seeing a lot more uh, of these attacks. It, it doesn't seem like a fuzzy line at all for me. You know, if one group gets paid before they do the hack and another group doesn't get paid unless they pull it off right and they choose the right target, uh, those are very different groups with very different motivations in how they choose those targets and, and how they treat those targets, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. They all seem to pretty much agree, though, you know, that that uh, in hindsight, you know, some of these targets that they hit. And, and I remember saying that at the, at the time, you know, when we were talking on the podcast about Colonial Pipeline and, and the uh, forget the name of the meatpacking. Uh, JBS. JBS. Yeah. Um, that in hindsight, they probably didn't intend to hit something that would, you know, result in so much heat on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it that's one of those things that I found really interesting because we were saying, you know, that 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 was probably a mistake on their part. They probably had no idea the the levels of blowback that they would get from that. And, and, and they did seem to confirm that. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of questions that I think people have about these groups. Going back to what you were saying a little while ago about sort of if they're, you know, these groups are saying similar things, are they connected at all are they being run by the same people um and it's just like there are so many unknowns and i feel like that's part of the motivating factor of why i'm i'm personally so interested in in like having an opportunity to ask them these questions and hear from them sort of what exactly is going on i'm here all day for it man like like you know one one group you know talking smack about Revel and how they're reckless and you know <laughs> you know them criticizing each other and and uh seeing the competition between them it, it's it's uh it's super interesting um <clears throat> but y- another thing you know is just kind of that kind of iceberg uh component of it where we certainly see uh a percentage of it you know mm-hmm. in, in some of those you know, what, what Revil did, you know, what some of these, uh, you know, going after the wrong companies makes them look a little careless and, and reckless. Like maybe they're not as sophisticated and good at what they're doing. Um, you know, but I think there's a, a huge piece, you know, and I'm, I'm wondering if you're, if you're covering that outside of Dimitri's interviews, uh, you know, or recorded future maybe has data intelligence on some of this where it just goes so smoothly, you know, these crews don't need to put it into the uh, into the public. They don't need to contact media companies to get more uh, focus on it. You know, like, like it just, I mean, personally, I've seen extortion cases where they price it so that a manager within a company or a director that has budget control 
can actually pay the ransom uh, because they, they know how much money they can move without having to get it approved by the CFO. You know, so I've seen cases where one person in a company is the only person that knows that this ransom wow. got paid. Wow, that's crazy. So I, I wonder how much is below the surface, how much of that, and if that's something that you're looking at is is, is the portion that goes smoothly that, that we never see because maybe some of these crews, you know, are less reckless, are a little bit more savvy. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right about it being an iceberg. It, I'm not sure if it's 10% or 20% that we have visibility into, but um, that is something that we're actually looking at. And we've been starting, we've been doing a ransomware tracker for the last about six months or so, um, where we try to scan every single ransomware attack that's publicly or semi-publicly available. Anything that has ever been reported on as a ransomware attack, we go to dark web forums, anything that is um, mentioned on there is a ransomware attack. A lot of these operators have extortion sites where if you don't pay a ransom, then they'll post your name there. We track those. Um, and we've especially been looking at things like uh, attacks against hospitals, uh, state and local governments, schools. And what we've, we've seen is that there was a huge, huge spike uh, around December and January. Um, and it's kind of decreased, maybe plateaued a little bit. Um, but we're trying to get as much visibility into that as we possibly can. And, um, all, uh, estimates that we've been able to find and suggest that, yes, it is not a good situation. There are a lot of attacks and, uh, it seems like there are even, you know, a factor of whether it's five or 10, who knows how many, uh, of attacks that happen but we'd never hear about because again it was like you're saying um it was paid off and it was swept under the rug or it was affected like a small operation like a dentist's office and and no one ever really hears about it and it's having an impact on the industry too you know we're seeing cyber insurance scramble and we're seeing uh, one of the new trends we talked about in the news segment of uh enterprise security weekly uh a few weeks ago was that um, we're starting to see cyber insurance companies that are also product companies, you know, so they're involved in, in some way with your with your security program. You know, with some, it's just services. You know, they they they're just kind of continuously looking at the the status of your program and your systems and stuff like that, looking at metrics and things like that to make sure that you're you're not falling behind. But in other cases. These cyber insurance companies have their own security products that they're developing and that, you know, that's part of the insurance is like they're actively involved and invested in making sure you don't get into a situation where you, you, you've got to pay out. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely interesting that on both the criminal side, the insurance and remediation side, there's a lot of innovation and a lot of sort of motion that changes it's an interesting time for the whole the whole ecosystem so as, as we kind of um as we kind of wrap up here um you know one last question that that's uh, again probably another one of these tough editorial things you know I've noticed especially in the marketo conversation which i just want to say marketo makes it so hard to find information about that group because it's also a, a marketing technology company and <laughs> it's incredibly hard to Google and find information on that. But um, 
this whole aspect of these crews and how they, a lot of them actively use the media to put pressure on, on victims to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> there was a graphic in that story that, that might include you know, a brand that kind of hits close to home for us. Um, you know, and it, it, it's interesting because it's a list of partners and they've got um, like the FDIC in there. They've, they've got, uh, I think, Department of Homeland Security, somebody like that was on there as, as partners because in covering the fact that the ransom has happened, yeah, I, I, I mean, you tell me, is that why they're calling these organizations partners is because by publicizing it, that creates pressure for the victim to pay? Yeah, they, they're definitely stretching the definition of partner uh, to the uh, in the sense that they consider them a partner, but I'm sure no one on that list, uh, including law enforcement agencies, see it as that way. Um, sure. But yeah, it, it's the idea is that they use those organizations uh, as a tool um, to make ultimately make money um, that they say that they will, for example, tip off the FBI if someone refuses to pay, um, thinking that that would sort of like, you know, twist their arm a little bit. Um, and media is uh, absolutely sort of one of the one of the components there. And I think in other cases, you know, I have seen some kind of angry Twitter exchanges where maybe reporters, some reporters are getting contacted directly by these crews um, mm-hmm. and, and basically tapped to write the the stories for them. Uh, it is the way I think some people are kind of looking at that, which is which is different from what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's I mean, this is kind of a editorial question that has been going on truly forever. Um, how do you cover criminals? And, uh, you know, it's it's not unique to cybersecurity. Um, for example, like the Unabomber's, uh, you know, threats that like there is there are very serious decisions made in traditional newspapers of whether or not to publish that kind of material. Um, so it's something that, that people have struggled with and I don't think there's, there's absolutely no consensus on it. Um, and it's something that really every time that I get these interviews, I, I have to, it's not just thinking about how to, um, present them, but like, do you want to present them at all? Um, is the benefit of publishing them, does it outweigh any sort of, uh, you know, negative consequence? Um, it's definitely something that takes a lot of, a lot of thought um, and a lot of soul searching. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the website is therecord.media. Is that correct? Yep. And uh, and you have a mailing list. Is is that the best way to get notified of of new stories? Yeah, you can get uh, a. Every uh, Sunday, you can get it on our newsletter that will just give you a list of our stories, um, or you can follow us on Twitter, or just read us at therecord.media. And you've got some video experience in your background. Any plans to, you know, create a podcast, move into video, you know, do anything other than just the, the digital delivery? Yeah, I mean, that's actually something that we're... Um, working on right now for 2022 um we just hired 
uh, Dina Temple Raston, who was NPR's main uh, national security, cybersecurity um, reporter. Uh, and we're, you know, definitely there's a lot in store next year um, in terms of expanding outside of uh, our website that I'll, I'll sort of leave that uh, TV. Awesome. It's a nice surprise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, the teaser there. Um, yeah, actually, uh, you know, in the in the news, we've started using uh, the record quite a bit for a lot of the stories uh, that that we talk about. Um, you know, so we we definitely appreciate a lot of that a lot of that content. Um, we appreciate Adam, we appreciate the links. Thank you. Yeah, definitely, uh, Adam. Thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Enterprise Security Weekly. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Adrian. <laughs>